Welcome to Forecast, the foreshadowed podcast seeking glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. Foreshadow is a spirituality literary magazine rooted in the Christian faith. I'm Josh, the editor of Foreshadow, and today we continue our theme called Forth, Vocation and Faith. We've had a strong series of interviews so far this season, and today's episode takes a departure from those because I'm not interviewing anyone, but rather I'm mining a book called Thomas Merton on the Vocation of Writing, edited by Robert Inchausty. If you've been listening to our podcast, you will know that this is actually continuing the project I began last season. However, I trust that the late monk and writer Thomas Merton has insights for this season's theme of vocation and faith. So to review from the previous episodes, which are episodes 19, 20, and 21, if you want to listen to them, but not all at the same time, of course, Merton has discussed our universal vocation to become new creations and to participate in Christ's work of making all things new. Merton has also been describing the challenges and gifts that writing brings as one way that people can fulfill that universal vocation. For Merton, a Christian who writes must not only be skilled in their craft, but they must also have an actively receptive orientation towards God. Their writing, among other things, must witness to the truth and to the new life that one has in Christ. So today we'll be reading some parts of chapter 4, which is called On Writers, On Other Writers. And here Martin is, we see Merton's excerpts of Merton's writing to or about a variety of writers, such as the poet Dylan Thomas, or Boris Pasternak, who wrote Dr. Zhivago, or James Baldwin, or Albert Camus, Flannery O'Connor, William Blake, and many others. As I've been doing in the previous episodes, I won't comprehensively summarize Merton's writing as much as highlight the passages that resonate most with me and with our theme. And as a little bonus, this episode also features a poem that was read and written by Foreshadow contributor Matthew Andrews. So let's get started. Our first passage comes from a journal entry in 1948, in which Merton writes, Dylan Thomas's integrity as a poet makes me very ashamed of the verse I have been writing. We who say we love God, why are we not as anxious to be perfect in our art as we pretend we want to be in our service of God? If we do not try to be perfect in what we write, perhaps it is because we are not writing for God after all. In any case, it is depressing that those who serve God and love Him sometimes write so badly when those who do not believe in Him take pains to write so well. I am not talking about grammar and syntax, but about having something to say and saying it in sentences that are not half-dead. St. Paul and St. Ignatius Martyr did not bother about grammar, but they certainly knew how to write. Imperfection is the penalty of rushing into print, and people who rush into print too often do so not because they really have anything to say, but because they think it is important for something by them to be in print. 
Merton repeats something that he has often written about, and that is how important it is for a writer who's also a Christian to write well. But in our passage today, he expounds upon that. For him, writing well isn't just a matter of, as he says, grammar and syntax. I, as a proofreader, can relate to that because my job is to to fix the grammar and syntax of people's writing so that it's it reads well. It reads what like an academic paper should read, for example. But he's actually talking about a deeper kind of writing well, and that is uh, having something worth saying. Although I've been writing myself for many years, studying journalism and creative writing in college and writing in graduate school after that and beyond that, this is something that I've only really been learning recently, the importance of having a message worth writing about. I've spent many years learning this craft of writing and uh, learning about how words can work well together and how to express myself in language and to, um, to use metaphors and, and rhymes and make words and sentences sound good. But the older I've got, the more I've realized that one gains more experience uh, the more one lives and opens one's eyes and one's heart to life. And the more one does that, the more one has things worth writing about. I think of the essays and the poems that I wrote about in college. And while there may be some depth to them, I think that looking back, uh, if I were to write poems now, which I don't do as often as I did before, um, I think there would be a, 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 a deeper sense in them because of the experiences I've had and the insights I've gained in the years since then. And I'm not saying that college-aged writers or people in their teenage years or 20s cannot write well because they don't have as many years as someone who's in their 60s or 70s, but rather that everyone develops at a different time and the more one develops and gains experiences and insights and wisdom, the deeper and the richer and more meaningful their writing will be. But that actually strays from what Merton is saying. For Merton, the problem with writing isn't so much that people lack the wisdom and the insight or the experience to write, but rather, for him, he says it's because they're not writing for God. If people were writing for God, they would have meaningful things to write about. What does it mean to write for God? Well, this is something that Merton will go into more detail later in this book, and hopefully we'll have the opportunity to, to explore that in the later chapters. But to quickly answer, I think writing for God is, as Merton has said before, is about having an orientation of being receptive, actively receptive toward God, seeking Him in the various things we do, including in our writing. I think this includes writing to God. For example, how many of the Psalms are written with God as the audience because they are prayers to God. But I also think this includes any other kind of writing we do that's directed to other people. We can still 
give that act of writing as an offering to God and pray that God may use it to edify people and to point them to God. What gets in the way of this, Merton says, is our pride, essentially, because he says that so often people want to rush into print, not so much because they have something worth printing, but because they want to see their name published. And this is something that I can relate to, um, just how exciting it can be to, to have my name published out there, to have something I've written published. But that's not really the goal of writing for God. Um, the, the goal is that God would be glorified through what we write, and hopefully that others would benefit from that in some way. I think in this way, we can write for God just as equally by writing an, a loving email to someone in which we are encouraging them or expressing our love for them or somehow witnessing to God compared to getting a, an essay published in the New York Times or something like that. I think both of those have the potential for glorifying God and being written for God. I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other. although. On a worldly level, if you can call it that, I think people tend to see the New York Times article as more successful than a simple email because many of us write emails all the time, but few of us get published in a famous magazine. But when we're writing for God, those outward distinctions of status and success crumble. And what really matters is the heart and the reason we're writing and the message and so in that sense, we can write for God just as equally um, if it's a letter to someone or if it's um, a sermon that we read to a, a congregation or if it's a book that we publish or uh, an article or something else. So in summary, being a Christian who writes isn't just about getting our work published or just about refining our uh, skills at weaving together metaphors and rhymes. Those are useful tools to have. And if we don't have that knowledge to some degree, then our readers won't trust us as writers. As Merton says in a previous chapter, we need to show our authority as writers first before people will listen to anything spiritual we might say through our writing. But Ultimately, we have to cultivate our inner person and um, cultivate ourselves so that we are not seeking pride or our own glory, but rather we are doing this out of love for God, out of response to God's love for us and, um, and not caring so much about the outward forms of success that our writing may or may not bring. This also requires a little bit of listening to how God might want us to direct our writing. And here I want to jump to another book that I recently read. Um, it was lent, uh, lent to me by a relative, and it's very uh, fitting for our topic. It's called Live for a Change, Discovering and Using Your Gifts by Francis D. War. I recommend it. It's about calling, vocation, and Francis Dewar is an ordained uh, minister, but also uh, one of his ministries is 
helping people to discover their calling and their gifts. And he writes about writing, and, um, and here's what he says in one portion. He writes quite a bit about writing and other vocations, but for this conversation right now, um, I'd like to share this passage. It may seem as though I have assumed that if you know what your gift is, you automatically know what God wants you to do with it. But that is by no means always the case, even though the two are very much connected. For example, if I become aware that I have a gift for writing, that when I write generously it seems to communicate with people, that does not tell me what the Lord wants me to write. Should it be articles for Reader's Digest, or novels, or radio plays, or newspaper articles, or should I start a parish magazine for my local church, or what? That is a matter of hearing what God is calling you to. So in addition to the first level of having writing skills, and in addition to the second level of having a message worth writing about, here Francis Duar suggests a need, the need for a third level of knowing where to channel that message, in what medium, in, in what, towards what audience. So the Christian who writes requires an inner transformation. And this is something that Merton has been saying all throughout this, this book. In the next passage we read, Merton t writes a little more about this inner transformation. Um, it's from the Pasternak affair. And he is writing about the author of Dr. Zhivago, Boris Pasternak. Both as a writer and as a man, Pasternak stands out as a sign of contradiction in our age of materialism, collectivism, and power politics. His spiritual genius is essentially and powerfully solitary. Yet his significance does not lie precisely in this. Rather, it lies in the fact that his very solitude made him capable of extraordinarily intimate and understanding contacts with men all over the face of the earth. The thing that attracted people to Pasternak was not a social or political theory, it was not a formula for the unification of mankind, not a collectivist panacea, panacea for all the evils in the world. It was the man himself, the truth that was in him, his simplicity, his direct contact with life, and the fact that he was full of the only revolutionary force that is capable of producing anything new, he is full of love. What really stands out to me in that um, excerpt is how Pasternak had direct contact with life through his um, simplicity, through his being set apart from others, it seems. I don't know very much about Pasternak, so this is just based on what I've been reading here in Merton. And as Merton concludes that passage, he is full of love. And so it is out of this love that we experience as Christians, this love from God, and this life that we receive from God, it is out of that, out of our relationship with God, our relationship with others, that uh, we can be transformed and that we can offer something, have, have a message worth uh, people reading and a message worth our writing about uh, to others. 
I think of the passage in the Gospel of John soon before Jesus' crucifixion. He tells his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And there Jesus is telling them that, that he has loved them and he loves them and he has offered himself for them. He has just washed their feet um, and he is about to sacrifice his life so that they may live uh, eternally and that they may overcome death. And, um, and it is out of that love, once they realize that they are loved by Jesus, that they can then have the power to love others in a similar way. And I think it's the same with our writing and anything else we do, that we need to have that uh, fundamental knowledge of Christ's love for us as well. Um, he loved us so much that he gave his life for us so that we may live. And only when we understand that will we then have love that can overflow to others through our actions, through our work, through our writing. That's a message that's worth sharing, and it might express itself in a variety of different ways, and it will do based on our own experiences, our own um, languages that we speak, um, not only literal languages, but the, the kinds of um, things we talk about and the people that we will reach. But with that love as our source um, that's transforming us, um, we can then have things worth writing about. And I wonder if love is actually at the heart of writing and expression and communication. That at the end of the day, whether we're writing a, an article to be published in a magazine, whether we're writing an email or a, a novel or a poem or whatever it is, at the very heart of it, it's a sign that we love whoever's reading it, and more deeply, that God loves them. And that's what writing as a form of ministry is. That's the sense that I get in this next passage that Thomas Merton writes, in which he writes a letter to Boris Pasternak. He says, With other writers I can share ideas, but you seem to communicate something deeper. It is as if we met on a deeper level of life on which individuals are not separate beings. In the language familiar to me as a Catholic monk, it is as if we were known to one another in God. This is a very simple and, to me, obvious expression for something quite normal and ordinary, and I feel no need to apologize for it. I am convinced that you understand me perfectly. It is true that a person always remains a person and utterly separate and apart from every other person. But it is equally true that each person is destined to reach with others an understanding and a unity which transcend individuality. And Russian tradition describes this with a concept we do not fully possess in the West, Sobornost. This reminds me of a famous quote that we read to know that we are not alone. I think Merton is describing uh, a special quality in this author that his writing has an ability to transcend all sorts of boundaries that people who read his writing can sense 
a togetherness with the author, a sense of fellowship with the author. This is a gift that I think writing has, this ability to transcend space and time so that someone who reads a work of writing can feel a sense of closeness with the person who wrote it, even if the writer wrote that piece centuries earlier. I think of the New Testament epistles, how so many of us continue receiving strength from it um, through the Holy Spirit and, and just through the, the words as well on the page. Um, I think there's a kind of synergy taking place there. Uh, and I think that happens with so much writing as well. There's potential for this, that, um, that we can communicate not only information, but our very selves, our very presence, and, and even perhaps the presence of God, if God is working through us, um, to someone who's reading a work of, of art, uh, you know, a work of poetry or a, a letter or something like that. Even if it's an email sent from one end of the world to the other, um, good writing and has this quality of togetherness. So to summarize, perhaps we can say that the first step to becoming a good writer or whatever work we might be called to do, the foundational step to becoming a good writer is to know that we are loved by God because it is only out of that knowledge of God's love for us that we can offer love to others through our writing or whatever work we do. Being a new parent, I've heard from many midwives and doctors and informational pamphlets that these first two years of our baby's life are so crucial for their development that it's an opportunity for us as parents to love our child so that our child would know that they are loved and out of that love, they will become confident and healthy throughout their lives. It, it sets a strong foundation for their lives. And I think in a similar way, whenever we are aware and open to God's love for us, that transforms our interactions with others because we can be grounded in a love that doesn't shift like various moods or feelings, but it's a, it's a strong, permanent love, steadfast love that God has for us. This next passage from Merton is one that I have chosen because it illustrates what he thinks makes good poetry, and I like his description. He writes to, uh, in a letter to Sister Therese Lentfor in 1960, have you read the poems of Brother Antonius William Everson? Very, very fine. I am most happy with their rugged, austere, monastic quality, serious and deeply sincere, with a wonderful sense of the ambivalence of life and the reality of sin and of God's mercy. That is the very stuff our life is made of, and modern Catholic devotion tries to escape it with sentiment. There is no escape. 
It has to be faced squarely. He does this, and I am grateful. I went over some of his poems with the novices over the holidays. So Merton appreciates William Everson's squarely facing the reality of sin and God's mercy in his poetry. And I'd like to read a part of William Everson's uh, poem called The Watchers and We in the Fields. Um, just the beginning of it. I had not read William Everson before, but this is just to illustrate, I hope, what uh, Merton is describing. Dawn and a high film, the sun burned it, but noon had a thick sheet and the clouds coming. The low rain-bringers trooping in from the north, from the far cold fog-breeding seas, the womb of the storms. Dusk brought a wind, and the sky opened. All down the west the broken strips lay snared in the light, bellied and humped and heaped on the hills. The set sun threw the blaze up, the sky lived redly, banner on banner of far-burning flame. From south to the north, the furnace door wide and the smoke rolling. We in the fields, the watchers from the burnt slope, facing the west, facing the bright sky, hopelessly longing to know the red beauty. But the unable eyes, the too small intelligence, the insufficient organs of reception, not a thousandth part enough to take and retain. We stared, and no speaking, and felt the deep loneness of incomprehension. The flesh must turn cloud, the spirit air, the transformation to sky and the burning, absolute oneness with the west and the down sun. And now I'd like to share another poem. This one was published on Foreshadow earlier this year by Matthew J. Andrews, who is a private investigator and writer from California. I think this poem similarly uh, faces squarely the reality of sin and God's mercy, and it also has a rugged, austere, monastic quality in the words of Merton. And we're fortunate to be able to hear the author read his poem. Jonah and the King Of course I doubted him, crazed man of dust blown in by the wind, waterlogged eyes, salt baked onto his skin, demanding penance in the name of a god foreign to my ears, telling stories dripping wet with madness. But he took my hand with surprising strength and guided my fingers down the length of his arm, to the wounds riddling him like pockmarks, those places where the grave's teeth tore into the skin, and to the patches burned with the corrosive splash of Sheol's stomach. And as I imagined the pain his God had made him endure, he drew my eyes up to his and asked me, Do you now believe? On the kind of surface level of writing quality, what I appreciate about this poem is the imagery of it. Um, for the background of the poem, it's told from the perspective of the king of Nineveh, who is um, faced with Jonah, this man who has just been washed up on shore 
vomited by a great fish and who has been traveling throughout the city of Nineveh as told in, in the book of Jonah, preaching that God will destroy the city in 40 days. But what I, and so we can see this, um, the imagery of Jonah that we often, at least I often don't think about um, when I read about him speaking before the king of Nineveh, that he has waterlogged eyes, salt baked onto his skin after this journey through the sea and in the belly of the fish and through the desert and telling stories dripping wet with madness. And then Jonah uh, shows the king his hand and his arm with wounds riddling him like pockmarks, wounds which came from the teeth of the great fish um, where the grave's teeth tore into the skin and um, with the corrosive splash of Sheol's stomach. But on a deeper level, and this goes back to what Merton said earlier about how uh, good writing has a message, I really like the, the unique angle and message that this poem conveys about the story of Jonah and, and even beyond the story. That um, it seems that what really persuades the king of Nineveh to, um, to repent, as we read about in the book of Jonah, is seeing the, the suffering that Jonah had gone through, as seeing what he had endured and um, for the sake of Nineveh, and, and ultimately, though, for the sake of following God and, and who this God was. So what Jonah's wounds say about the, the seriousness of this God this God that Jonah is speaking on behalf of to Nineveh. As Christians, we read the story of Jonah uh, allegorically in the sense that we see that Jonah is a foreshadow and a sign of Jesus. And although I don't know if this poet intends this, some of the language in this poem hints at that, where he it describes the grave's teeth. So it's, no, it's not just the teeth of the fish, but it's the teeth of the grave. And um, the corrosive splash of Sheol's stomach, Sheol being the place of the dead. It's not just the, the stomach of the great fish, it's the stomach of death. And um, that echoes Jesus' death and how he was buried in a, in a grave or in a tomb. And... Um, and when he rose again, the, the scars were still there on his arms and um, in his side. But if we see Jonah as a sign of Christ, then we can hear Christ asking us, do you now believe, seeing the, the wounds in his side and the, uh, the death that he voluntarily took upon himself in order to rescue us from our own destruction and from our own death. And so, while on the surface, this may seem to contradict what I said earlier about us being aware of God's love for us, if we read this poem uh, with the lens of seeing Christ in it, we can see that Christ has shown us the ultimate depth of his love for us by by taking on himself uh, death so that he could overcome death for all of us.
And I wonder if there is a message, too, for us who follow Christ, for us who seek to die in Christ so that we may live in Him, um, dying as in laying down our lives, the things we cling to, in order to receive the fullness of life that He gives us, um, dying to our pride and to our everything that gets in the way of the reception of God's love for us, that that itself can be a challenge and a struggle and can, will leave its marks on us. And, and the life that we live, the challenges that we face, the, um, the stresses and strains uh, of life, that can leave its scars on us as well. But when we receive the life that Christ gives us and when we overcome those challenges through Christ, perhaps the scars that we have on our bodies and on our souls can be a sign of authority that we have. When people see that, they can see the, that God has delivered us, that God has been with us, and that can encourage them to believe as well. To give a personal example of such challenges and to connect with Matthew Andrews' poem about Jonah, and to conclude this podcast episode for today, I'd like to read something I wrote recently, which was a letter in response to Plough Magazine's recent issue on music. My wife and I have been developing a repertoire of lullabies for our newborn son that we began singing when he was in the womb. We don't only sing religious songs, but the songs that resonate most with me are those adapted from scripture that I learned from my own parents when I was a child. And this one is adapted from Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto thee will I pray, my voice shall thou hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. As Brittany Petruzzi points out, people throughout history have found spiritual strength from singing the Psalms. Even Jonah, in the fish's belly, reorients his life to God by singing psalms. Although the joy that our little one brings us makes the struggle in raising him worth it, and more, there are moments, such as on a long day after a sleepless night of trying to settle him down, when I feel like I am in a sea storm or even drifting in the belly of a fish. Thanks to singing such spiritual lullabies, like Jonah, 
I too can pray amid the waves and breakers sweeping over me. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Well, that's the episode for today. If you liked hearing Matthew Andrews' poem, Jonah and the King, you can find that on the Foreshadow Magazine website. And we're looking forward to sharing a few other poems that he's written in the future. Well, he hasn't written them in the future, but we'll be sharing them in the future. Coming up on Forecast will be an interview with a friend of both Will and myself, whose name is Jarell Paggio, who is a piano tuner, a jazz musician, and a music teacher. And I'm also looking forward to speaking with another friend from college, Jeff Nelson, who is a vocational advisor at Duke University. Will also has another guest lined up, and we are planning our, our first review episode of this season where Will and I will be discussing previous interviews and conversations we've had this season and trying to glean insights and an overview of what we've learned from them in relation to our theme of vocation and faith. We would love to hear from you if you have any feedback on this season, any questions, comments. Perhaps we will uh, discuss them in our review episode, if appropriate. So please email me at foreshadowmagazine at gmail.com. And uh, to find our website, just type in foreshadowmagazine.com and you'll find art and poetry and music and nonfiction and other writing this season that also contribute to this theme of vocation and faith. You can sign up for our free weekly newsletter on the website. And please share this uh, episode, our podcast, and the website with people that you think would enjoy and appreciate this. And you can also find us on various social media platforms. Thanks for listening. That's the forecast for today. 